Book One from the point of view of Mrs. Gildea. Chapter Fourteen of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. The next time Biddy came, Joan tackled matters boldly. Biddy, I've had my marching orders. Mr. Gibb finds Leichardt's Land a bit stale. I take a train to Sydney next week and tour the Riverina, the Blue Mountains, and the country along the railway to Melbourne. Are you coming with me? Bridget gave a deprecatory laugh. I don't know. What would Rosamond say? She'd recognise the necessities of the situation. Besides, you could come back again. I haven't been here a month, and I don't find Leichardt's Land stale. On the contrary, I find it extremely stimulating. No, I think the Riverina and the Blue Mountains will keep as far as I'm concerned. But I won't keep. Mr. Gibb and the drawings for the Imperialist won't keep. The question is whether you want to make some money or not. It's the one thing I've wanted to do all my life, and have never yet succeeded in doing except when we collaborated in The Lady of Quality. Here's your chance for a continuation series, The Lady of Quality in the Bush. How does that sound? Rather clumsy and long, don't you think? Lady Bridget in the Bush would be more alliterative and catching. Only I should be giving myself away. I think you're doing that already, said Mrs. Gildea. How do you mean, Joan? I don't see it. Yes, you do. Look here, Biddy. Colin McKeith isn't Mr. Willoughby Mall. He's a hundred times better man, Joan. That you needn't tell me, and I'm glad you recognise the fact. But from the point of view of the lady of quality, would he be a better husband? You forget, my dear, that I'm not the genuine article. I'm nothing but a pinchbeck imitation of the real lady of quality. If his grandfather was a peasant, remember that my maternal grandparents were peasants too. I told him so yesterday. Has it come to that? You go fast, Biddy, but I warn you, Colin McKeith isn't the man to be trifled with. He knows his own mind. The question is whether you know yours. Biddy nodded her head like a Chinese Mandarin. Two months ago you were wildly in love, or at least, from your letters, one might have judged so, with another man, said Mrs. Gildare. No, no, don't call that love. Call it a violent attraction, then. I suspect the man could have made you marry him if he had chosen. So far as I can understand, you quarrelled, because neither of you would face matrimony on what you considered an inadequate income. Middle-class respectability, living in Pimlico or further Kensington, scoffed Biddy, ordering sprats and place for dinner and pretending they're souls in whitebait, perambulators stubbing up the hall, paying your own books and having your gown made at home. No, thank you. Possum skins and a black scunya. That's Australese for a wigwam, isn't it? Appeal to me infinitely more. Mrs. Gildea threw up her hands. Biddy, you haven't the faintest notion how dull and uncomfortable, how utterly unpoetic, how sordid the life of a struggling bushman can be. No. You know, Joan, I think that it might be perfectly fascinating if one really cared for the bushman. Really cared? Have you ever really cared for any man? Could you ever really care? That's what I've been asking myself. It would have to be someone quite different from all the other men I've liked, something altogether above the ordinary man to make me really care. You said that Mr. Willoughby Moore was different from any man you'd ever met. Each man you've ever fancied yourself in love with has been different from all the rest. Lady Bridget laughed rather uneasily. How tiresomely exact you are, Joan. Of course they were different. Everybody is different from everybody else, and I attract marked types. Will was more marked and more attractive, as well as attracted, that's all. His attraction doesn't seem to have been as strong as self-interest, anyway, 
said Joan, with deliberate terseness. The girl's small, pale face flushed to deep crimson for a moment. "'Joan, you are cruel. You know that was the sting, and it wouldn't have stung so if I hadn't cared. Sometimes I feel the maddest desire to hurt him, to pay him out. I never felt like that about any of the others, the ones I really did almost want to marry. And then at other times I'd give anything just to have him again as he used to be.' "'I'm certain you weren't really in love with him,' exclaimed Mrs. Gildea. Bridget seemed to be considering. "'Wasn't I? I'm not so sure of that.' "'No,' she went on impetuously. "'I was not really in love with him. He had a magnetic influence over me, as I told you. Perhaps I might get a little under it again if he were to appear suddenly without his wife. It turns me sick to think of a married man having a magnetic influence over me, even if there was no wife, now.' So when you've idealised a person, and can't idealise him any more, c'est fini. There's nothing but a ghost to come and make you uncomfortable sometimes, and that can't last. Besides, I've been breathing the strong clear air of your gum-trees lately. It's a case of poor devil, poor bushman. Do you see? I see, my dear, that you're idealising Colin McKeith, and let me tell you that a bushman is very far removed from the superman. O'Colin is a fine enough specimen of a pioneer in a rough country, but his rough life, his bush surroundings, and all the rest, why he jar upon you in a hundred ways if you are alone with him in them. Then, he's not of your order, though I hate the phrase and I hate the kind of man. All the same, Biddy, you may pretend to despise the men of your own class, but I fancy that, after a spell of roughing it with Colin on the upper lure, you'd hanker after something in them that Colin hasn't and never will have. And then, Joan's swift imagination carried her on with a rush. You don't know in the least the type of man he is. You'd have to give in to him. He'd never give in to you. He's domineering, jealous, vindictive, and reserved. Before a month was out you'd quarrel, and there would be no chance of your ever making it up again. I must say, Joan, that for a friend of his you're not an enthusiastic advocate. It's because I'm so fond of Colin that I hate the thought of you making him miserable. Anyway, however, you're bound to do that. I don't see why. If you flirt with him and then drop him, he'll suffer, though he'll be too proud to show it. And as for the alternative, it's out of the question. You must see that it would be sheer folly. I've committed a great many follies, said Bridget wistfully. But so far, none that are quite irrevocable. Well, he hasn't asked me yet to commit this one. You're leading him on to it. Biddy, it is abominable of you to encourage him as you do. Coming here with him that day, and you let him take you riding. Yes, he knows now that I can ride. And he's at Government House nearly every day. I can't think what Lady Talent is about to ask him so often to dinner. She likes him because he takes Luke off her hands. You know we've nicknamed him the unconstitutional adviser. That's rubbish. You sing to him. What harm is there in my singing to Colin McKeith? As if you didn't know well enough that you're perfectly irresistible when you look at a man while you're singing those Neapolitan things. Biddy, it won't do. Give it up. I can't do that, Joan. She spoke with a strange earnestness. Don't you see that it's giving me a chance? Of forgetting Mr. Willoughby Maule? Yes, but it's more than that. More than that? Do you mean... Can you mean that you could love Colin McKeith for himself? Love is a big word, Joan. I've never said to any man, I love you. She spoke the words now as if she were uttering a sacred formula. Her voice reminded Mrs. Gildea of something, 
the same note in the voice of Colin McKeith when he, too, had spoken of love. Yet what she had said was true. Bridget had talked often enough of falling in love, which she had always been at pains to define as a mere transitory condition, not by any means the real thing. And she had freely confessed to violent attractions and even adorations. But as she had sometimes solemnly stated, she had never loved. "'I can't explain,' she went on. "'I know you think me a heartless emotional flirt. "'Yes, I am, I admit it. "'But there's a locked door in the inner chamber, "'a shrine that no one has desecrated. "'The goddess is in there, waiting, waiting to reveal herself.' "'And so, all the rest have been... experiments?' "'No, the quest of the ideal through the forest of illusion.' I've often thought, Joan, there was a lot in the motive of that novel of Thomas Hardy's, The Well-Beloved. But I seem to be mixing up my metaphors, and it's time I went back to Government House. She got up and began putting on her gloves. Mrs. Gildea laughed hysterically. Somehow she could not imagine Colin McKeith producing the golden key and masterfully taking possession of Lady Bridget's locked shrine. She could only think of him as tricked, deceived, and suffering hideously at the end. She stammered out her fear beseeching Biddy to be merciful, but Biddy's mood had changed, and she only smiled her sphinx smile. "'I think he's quite able to look after himself,' she said. "'And if he isn't, sure, he must take the consequences.'" End of Book One, Chapter Fourteen